Hey there, folks, and welcome back to the Inside Line F1 podcast. Now, this week has been a bit of a historic week for the Inside Line F1 podcast. We had our first ever live meetup in Mumbai. And guess what? Over a hundred people attended. And what a mental weekend that was all the way through. Because we had a live interaction with Jehan Daruwala. We had veteran sports journalist Ayaz Memon also grace the event. And otherwise, there were great quizzes, great interactions on Formula 1. And it was just a very nice place to be for three long hours. And it didn't really feel like three long hours. And that's because we had such an amazing audience with us. Now, I know I might sound a little bit like Lewis Hamilton when I say this, but we quite literally had the best audience. They asked so many questions, so many insightful questions as well, ones that actually made you ponder. And the discussions, the debates, the quizzes, everything was absolutely superb. So if you're any one of the people who attended our live watch along at a live event in Mumbai, generally from the bottom of all of our hearts, thank you. Thank you for taking out the time to do so. But folks, if you're living otherwise in India as well, this is going to come to you. We are going to do more events here and there across the country. We are planning to do a few others as the season goes along. So stay tuned, follow our social media channels to keep yourselves updated with more of what's going to come. But now, let's get to the episode. Bob Varsha, one of the original voices of Formula 1 in the USA. And in this episode, Bob will be talking a lot about American drivers and how, generally, the world does not tend to view them with the same level as the European drivers. Just why is that? Here's Bob to explain more about it. If you had to pick one that you'd love to see the most... Uh, especially from the American market, which one would it be, per se? One driver? Correct. Wow. Um, <laughs> no. I, I get it. Well, that, I think that kind of proves it, right? There's so many good ones to pick from. Yeah. Well, let me say this. There is a distinct prejudice, if that's the right word, against young American drivers. And I've heard it from the mouths of Mm -hmm. team principals. They think America, as Ron Dennis of McLaren once said, America is the biggest island in the world. And there's some (laughs) truth to that. Um, You know, the uh, young drivers in the United States have so many options to race, to make good money, and to sleep in their own beds during the week. If you're going to go Formula One racing, there's no question a young driver has to go to Europe, has to race the tracks, has to race the competition because the European perspective tends to be that the young Europeans are better than the young Americans for that reason. They they race each other all the time. They know the tracks and so on. Hmm. Um, I'd love to see that prejudice overcome with a a young American driver who makes the commitment that Michael Andretti himself did not make in his year in Formula One. He wanted to fly back and forth on Concord uh, and, and that doesn't work. He once said to me, um, you know, when I asked him, you know, are you, are you comfortable with the team? Do you get to the factory? And his answer was, they have my number. You know, that's, that's, that's not how it works. You, know, wow. you need to be there. You need to be in the factory. Testing went away. And Michael had a rough go of it. He thought he was going to get into a Formula One car, but lots of testing and would have the Honda engine and it would be really good. Well, that's when McLaren lost their Honda deal. He wound up with a Ford engine and no testing. That was when the rules changed yeah. to allow virtually zero uh, testing. And it was before the era of highly, highly sophisticated 
simulation systems. So he didn't mm. have that advantage either. His biggest advantage probably was the fact that he was teamed with Ayrton Senna, uh, mm. who I have heard on a number of occasions was very supportive of Michael. And when Michael got cut off at the knees after his podium at Monza and was sent home in favor of Mika Hakkinen and the McLaren, he went home and he, he climbed into the all-new Reynard IndyCar and, and won his first race at Surfers Paradise in Australia. And the first phone call he got, Mario once told me, was from Senna, who wanted to congratulate uh -huh. him on, on landing on his feet because, uh, you know, they knew what Michael could do, but he was just fighting with one hand behind his back that whole brief time in Formula One. But anyway, um, gosh, uh, yeah, it would be oh. hard to pick. I think... Uh, Drivers racing in America or American drivers? I think both of them work because at this okay. stage, it seems like award would be kind of like a direct pick in a way because he's done Formula One testing. He's been around McLaren, maybe yep. him for Ricciardo. The rumor has been running the mills on Twitter again. Oh. A lot of rumors run the mill on Twitter, but still, it, it could, could, seem, could seem possible. He seems like the best fit, but would he be the best fit in your eyes? Um. I don't know if he'd be the best fit, quite frankly, because uh, it would depend on where he goes. If we assume he's going to McLaren, yeah, he'd fit right in because he's essentially a McLaren driver right now in IndyCar. Now, if you try to put him somewhere else, that might not be the case because the chemistry within these teams is so important. Uh, can Colton Herta do the job? Certainly. I think he would be good. And there are some really good young Americans in the pipeline. Uh, Logan Sargent, for example, in, uh, in Formula 2 was yeah. on pole. Uh, in Imola, um, uh, you know, Oliver Askew is over there driving in Formula E right now, and he's taking a very thoughtful approach. Yeah, he's not uh, threatening to score wins, but the, the challenge of Formula E from a driver's perspective is enormous in terms of learning the car and, and racing an all-electric uh, battery-powered car. Um, but I think he's doing some great work. Um, you know, Kyle Kirkwood, came up through the indie ladders, uh, has some, some possibilities. The, the reason I hesitate and scratch my head a lot is the, the example of Jacques Villeneuve, the 97 world champion. Uh, at first, Villeneuve, he was okay in the minor formula in Europe, Formula 3 and whatnot. Yeah. He was good, not great. Came to North America and raced in Formula Atlantic, Toyota Atlantic where his teammate was a guy named Claude Bourbonnet. Hmm. Bourbonnet had movie star looks, multilingual. He could do interviews in several different languages uh -huh. really quick. Uh, when Jacques, back in those days, has hair down to his shoulder, ripped jeans, only would speak French, doesn't want to talk about anything but music. He was very withdrawn. Um, but on track, they battled with one another as teammates at Forsyth Racing, the players team, um, and much like uh, Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso in 2007, they took points over off of each other, and David Emperingham, a very talented Canadian, came through to take the championship that year. In the offseason, they tested Bourbonnet and um, Villeneuve in their IndyCar, and Villeneuve was magic. I mean, he was a missile. So as I saw it, as the machinery got more and more fearsome, if you will, Villeneuve came to the fore. His talent just 
helped him rise to the top. And then, of course, he went off to the Indy 500, fell two laps down and came back and won without the benefit of a yellow flag. Um, and then went off to Formula One, took pole in his first race as Damon Hill's teammate for Williams in Australia. Uh, and the next year won the world championship in 97. So, you know, when you, know, you, when you look at this crop of talented kids, if I can call them kids, I'm always looking for that something special that, that gives me a hint that they might have this, that they are not in the kind of car where they can show their, their true ability. Um, I mean, I, I, I hope I made that clear. It's, uh, there are always gems out there um, right that just need the right opportunity in the right car and they'll knock your socks off. So, you know, who that kid might be in the United States right now, I'm not sure, but you've certainly mentioned uh, one good one at Paddle Award. We had Peter Windsor on our show last week, and he said that this situation wouldn't have happened if teams actually spent time analyzing the way drivers drive. Because a lot of the teams, he claims that they aren't quite aware of how people are doing things and what is their driving style, how do they approach it. So they usually just rely on let's say things like a shootout or weird metrics like, oh, how did they perform in their last season when circumstances right. are to be considered, like which team were they a part of, or for instance, how well does the car suit them? Or what sort of budget do they bring at the table? You think this could be avoided as well? Because now we're facing a time where many people enter Formula One, but they just seem out of place. We've seen Yuki Tsunoda be an example of that. We've seen Mick Schumacher now be an example of that. We're not quite sure how Nick DeVries might end up panning out eventually, but we are increasingly yeah. seeing drivers out of their depth in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, isolating talent, picking future stars is not something that's easy to do. And we have seen in Formula One and elsewhere teams or team principals or whoever it is who can spot these things. Thinking of Peter Sauber, who, uh, you know, owned the, the Sauber team that became Alfa Romeo and uh, had great success before getting to Formula One with his sports car teams and whatnot. He had a tremendous ability to spot new talent. He put Kimi Raikkonen into a Formula One Sauber after Raikkonen had come from karts and done like less than two dozen races in full-size car, less than two dozen races. And he said, okay, let's put this guy in a Formula One car and the, you know, the rest is history. So sometimes it's just luck, you know, a pig finds a truffle, or sometimes, you know, it's that ability to locate that factor, to focus on what you were just talking about. I mean, all of the things together, you know, how well did he do in the context of what he had available to him? Did he overachieve? Did he, uh, you know, does he pr provide good feedback? Does he relate to the car or does he set up the car so it relates to him? We, we hear all the time about the drivers who, can be really fast in a race car, but if the race car is badly set up, they don't know how to make it a better car. And then you get guys like the aforementioned Michael Schumacher, who were just superb at setting up their car. And we see drivers in, in IndyCar, and I won't get into who, but there are drivers who set up cars for their teammates because they have you know an acute sense of what it takes to do it. So yeah, it's it's... I suppose there's a place for elaborate junior driver programs if you don't have somebody who can look and say, okay, that guy and that girl or whoever it is, let's put them in the car. If for no other reason, then it simply opens up the opportunity to gather more information on these people. I mean, we are time and again, nobody's ready 
you know, a Red Bull was talking about putting Colton Herta in a car because they don't have anybody in their extensive junior program who they think is ready for Formula One right now. And I thought that was extraordinary. But, you know, that appears to be the case or somebody is blowing smoke. But one way or another, yeah, it's a it's a unique skill to locate tomorrow's talent. Hang on. I, I just love that you're able to bring out so many fun nuggets because I almost forgotten about Colton Herter for a second because a couple of months ago, that was the big story. Colton Herter to Formula One. Is he going to be in the Alpha Tauri? And then the way the FIA dealt with super license points. Do you think that was disrespectful to American motorsport? Because they haven't oh, branded it enough. So. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. But that's been in place forever. American drivers, by and large, around the world are underestimated, undervalued, considered, I don't know, soft or mama's boys or whatever. They don't mean to be insulting, but Ron Dennis, the longtime and super successful McLaren team principal, used to describe the United States as the world's largest island, you know, because we didn't, we did our own thing and we had our own motorsports. We didn't get involved in world endurance, much less Formula One or MotoGP or all that kind of stuff with a few notable exceptions. But The point was Americans don't value Formula One. They don't want to come over. They don't want to live in the little towns where the factories are. They don't want to mix it up with the teams. When Michael Andretti went to McLaren for his less than one season, I I saw him at a race and I asked him why he was flying back and forth between the United States and, and Europe for the races. And he said because his father did. And Mario did that because Mario had a full racing schedule over here and everything down to dirt sprint cars, as well as the Indy 500. But he also had the benefit of the Concorde and he could go back and forth in two and a half hours. But Michael didn't want to live near the factory, wanted to sleep in his own bed at night. And I said, well, you know what, don't you want to know the innards of the car? Don't you want to be in it as much as as possible? And he said, they have my number, you know, and the rest, as they say, was history and and it all went sour. And I think that's the the critical thing that they want from American drivers. They want them to come over, race against the young Europeans and Asians and and what have you. And American drivers didn't do much of that. And then you had the case of great American drivers who were turned away. Rick Mears tested a Brabham alongside Nelson Piquet. And Piquet barred Mears from being hired by the team, to hear Rick tell it. You know, Jeff Gordon tested for Williams and decided not to do that. There's Al Unzer Jr. tested and decided not to do that. I mean, you can understand guys with families and, you know, a comfortable lifestyle here in the United States want to be close to that. And then maybe the, the, the siren sounds of Formula One don't speak as loudly to them. Um, but I think we're seeing a change in that. I think there are youngsters who are, who are ready to go do whatever it takes to get to Formula One. And maybe that'll change. But my basic point is that they don't have the respect that I think American drivers deserve right now. The case in point with the NDT IndyCar series, you know, scoring as many super license points as Formula Two over in Europe is, is absurd. It's just crazy, but that's the way it is. And unless they look at the rule and change it and a top three or five point scorer in IndyCar, sure as hell should have uh, an FIA super license. You know, they should have the uh, golden ticket to go whatever form of motorsport they want to around the world because these are clearly superior talents, but not always perceived that way. Come on, this just feels like the right time to have, if not one, but two American teams because we've got so many races happening. There's an increasing audience. 
I don't know why it wouldn't make sense. And if I'm not mistaken, have they actually signed a letter of intent to kind of start an F1 team from scratch? Are they that ambitious? Well, yes, that's what they've essentially done is they went to the FIA and said, we're ready to join. You have space under the mandatory team limit in the pit lane. So give us a shot. I myself have no idea why there was so much initial reluctance. Uh, Total Wolf in particular from Mercedes said, you know, really nasty things about, you know, as though this were a bunch of people nobody had ever heard of, where are they coming from? We've seen this before. Um, This is Michael Andretti and his success, both as a driver and as a team owner, particularly as a team owner. Uh, His cousin, John Andretti, uh, once told me that Michael has never seemed happier than when he became a team owner and a deal maker. Uh, And now he races in Indy cars and Indy lights and um, in Formula E and in Australian supercars and and you name it. I mean, Michael is just, he's everywhere and he can't, seemingly can't wait for the next opportunity to go race in something else. Uh, I think he'd be a huge uh, addition to Formula One. There is certainly enough talent around to staff a really good team. And who wouldn't want to be associated with the Andretti name? So I, I don't know what the right. reluctance has been. Maybe there was too much talk early on about you know Andretti coming, Andretti coming. It's gone quiet in recent weeks and months, as you know. And to me, maybe that means something's up. Um, you know, Michael has said he's he's put the proof of his financing out there. Um, you know, he wants to make plans. He's got people applying for jobs with him, and and I'm sure there's some very experienced, good people. Um, he's got a plan. Um, so you know, what's what's the holdup? I don't quite understand that myself. Um, but hopefully, eventually, it will come good. He will he will do his deal. But speaking of Miami, speaking of Formula One, and you mentioned something, creating a big buzz around it in the first year. Formula One's going to do that with with Las Vegas as well. And it kind of seems like the whole vision from 2017 is coming true, where we've got a more equal playing field, budget caps, more races in America. I mean, what's the feeling around Las Vegas as well? Because you mentioned it's what's not to like about it. I get a feeling that every American city that's going to get on is going to have that same what, what do you say? Same buzz around it. So mm-hmm. this this seems like a good time in general. And and from the last time we spoke, it seems that the dreams are kind of coming true. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a reflection of the exploding interest in Formula One on behalf of the American audience, which has both its good and its bad elements, because a lot of the old purists who enjoyed the elitism of Formula One previously, our own little secret, um, you know, now have to share it with everyone who may have different things that they enjoy about Formula One. Um, Miami, as I said, is is, uh, America's most diverse and international city. Vegas is the epicenter of world decadence, uh, as you guys uh, may know. Um, So I think it has its own charms and in its own way is a marriage made in heaven for Formula One, a real destination city. Um, Formula One has wanted to go there for decades, literally. But going back to the Bernie Ecclestone era, and uh, it was never possible because the casino and, and spa hotel owners could not be convinced to allow their sidewalk space and the Las Vegas Strip, the famous strip out in front of their hotels, to be used for this racetrack. Um, 
somehow that barrier was overcome. I suspect because these folks who are the ultimate marketers uh, looked and saw that Formula One is extremely popular in America. They have a great international airport. This is a very doable thing. And, um, you know, the result's going to be spectacular. Uh, one of the biggest hotel and casino successes in Vegas is uh, Mr. Steve Wynn, a former Ferrari dealership partner with uh, Roger Penske. Um, he owns two hotels, the Wynn and its sister hotel, the Encore. And I read a report that those hotels received a bigger onslaught of requests for reservations than they have ever seen in Las Vegas. Now, this is a city with a massive convention center. They host the SEMA, Automotive Performance Marketers Association gathering, um, the Consumer Electronics Show, the National Association of Broadcasters. These are massive, massive events, tens of thousands of people. But even so, they haven't produced the, uh, the business opportunity, let's say, that Formula One is. And Formula One, mind you, doesn't even have a date yet in Vegas. So people are calling up saying, hey, can I get a can I get a reservation to get a reservation when they decide when they're going to hold this thing? Um, so, yeah, there's huge excitement generated by that. And uh, all three races, and I know there's been a lot of argument back and forth about whether uh, any country other than perhaps Italy should have uh, three races. Well, right now, I think the United States is a perfect place for three races. Uh, we've had them before. Um it's, it's a place everybody in the world wants to go, quite literally, including all the Formula One teams. And there are many, many, many sponsors. Let's go to the biggest marketplace in the world. Um, and the three cities that have been chosen, Miami, Boston, and Vegas, are so far apart from each other and so different from one another in so many ways that, you know, it'll be like you're in three separate uh, foreign um societies, uh, if you will, while, uh, while the races go forward, and three very different circuits. Uh, Miami is a temporary circuit, but it looks awfully close to being a permanent circuit. Of course, Circuit of the Americas is absolutely that, and uh, Vegas will be a true street circuit. So, uh, you know, what's not to like? Exactly. And speaking of Las Vegas, that city hosts, I mean, the WWE every year, They've got a big NFL team. And if that's the case, and that still uh, makes Formula One trump all the others, it's just fantastic to see what could potentially happen. And, and you're so right about that. They're so far apart. They're so different. I just wonder what's next. Can Formula One ever kind of pull off the New York race? But I suppose that's, that's a chat for later on. We should. I mean, variety is the spice of life and Formula One. I mean, with the, the, all the tracks cannot be the same. You know, wide open spaces like Monza or Silverstone, uh, you need you need difficult places. I mean, Monaco has come under a lot of scrutiny recently because it's been said that that's one of the classic races that doesn't make a lot of money, frankly, for Formula One and might need to um, up its game if it's even going to stay on the calendar. And I think even talking about such a thing is is horrific in my mind because Monaco is so much still the crown jewel of Formula One. So let's not get caught up in how much profit anyone makes off of it. I mean, that's the race people want to tune in and every driver wants to win perhaps as much as his home Grand Prix. So um, you need a Monaco, you need uh, an Imola, you need uh, uh, tracks like the three that we just talked about here in the United States, the permanent road circuit, the uh, almost a, a permanent road circuit and the, the, the true street circuits. And you want 
um, you know, a slow track, fast track, what's the difference? It's a competition. And perhaps more than any other kind of motorsport where, you know, you buy components off the shelf and everybody has the same stuff. And, you know, I love NASCAR and the IndyCar series as much as anyone, but they are not the same as Formula One, where you come up with your own car design, your own car construction. Uh, there are so many decisions that you make that the other teams are not making because they don't have the same car and yeah, setup yeah. that you do. So it's very hard to extrapolate from what one team is doing that's working to what another team might be able to do to simulate that success. I was so grateful to see when the new regulations, um, you know, produce the cars that they did. Uh, and they're, they're all so different. I mean, you know, there's a lot of smart people on all the different teams in Formula One. So we all kind of thought, Geez, you know, they're going to be kind of cookie cutter looking cars. Nope. One look at the front end of every car in the grid tells you that everybody yeah. has a different idea. And I think that's fabulous. But in general, sir, uh, can I just take a moment to say how much we love to have you on? Because I, I absolutely have been sitting here enjoying listening and you don't get that with too many people. You just don't feel like you just want to listen more and more and more. But for, so it's I been amazing it. to have you on. Seriously. And time has actually flown past. I, I, I don't know how much it's been, but it's been over an hour, but I don't even feel like it. I felt like we just started 10 minutes ago, which is the amazing part of having such a great storyteller on. But so thank you for making the time to come on to the show in the first place. It's, it's amazing to have you on. Anytime, fellas. I like it.